This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm going to ask you to imagine a scenario, if you would. Imagine that we were looking at a house that was for sale. And we were showing this house to someone, and we told them, well, this house was designed by Mr. So-and-so, and it was built by such-and-such building company in, in, in a certain year, and, and here it is. And the person began to go through and look at the house, and you see beautiful fixtures, beautiful woodwork. Isn't pretty woodwork in a house really impressive when it's finished nice, it's sanded smooth, it's, it's varnished, and it just looks pretty. And all the rooms are laid out well. It, the design is amazing. It's convenient. You know, it's, it's designed and built with, with a family in mind, so there's lots of room and plenty of closet space and really nice floors, everything you'd want in a house. You go back into a spacious utility room. Who has a big enough utility room? I mean, you know, you could always use more room in your, your utility room if for nothing else for more refrigerators and freezers to hold more meat. And you go in there and the person is looking in there and they're admiring it and they kind of touch some of the woodwork and all of a sudden their hand goes through the wall. There's termites. They well, what's this? The house has termites. And you said so-and-so designed this? Yes. And you said somebody else built it? Yes. Well, but there's termites in the house, so I don't believe that person you said designed it designed it, and I don't believe that company you said built it built it. Well, why? Well, because there's termites in the house. There's something wrong with it. Okay, now let me get this straight. You're saying because there's something fundamentally wrong with this house that you think nobody designed it and nobody built it? How do you think it got here? Well, it just happened. Now, how silly does that sound? I just gave you the atheist number one argument for saying there is no creator. Only it's not a house, it's a universe. And it's not termites, it's the devil. And all the folly and pain that he has wrought on humanity. The atheist loves to say, if there is an all-powerful and loving God who created this world, then why are there problems? And because there are problems, because there's termites, I don't believe God designed it and, and created it. I think this house just somehow happened by accident. We can see how silly that is when it's a house in termites, and I'll tell you, it's even more silly to say that about this universe. Well, then why are there problems in the world if God is a powerful God and he's a loving God and he wants us to be well cared for and accommodated? And the answer is very simple. It's not necessarily easy, 
It's not necessarily pleasant to endure the reality of it, but the answer is not complicated. One of God's angels that we know as Satan rebelled against God and convinced mankind to join his rebellion, although not realizing what they were doing apparently. And when they, Satan convinced mankind to sin, that brought sin into the world and it broke it. The termites got in the foundation and got in the woodwork. It was a great place designed with family in mind. Everything was just right till sin came along. Proverbs 11 and 19 says, As righteousness tendeth to life, so he that pursueth evil pursueth it to his own death. This passage joins with many others in scriptures that teaches us that sin or evil is inherently destructive. This one just says if you pursue evil, you do so to your own death. It's going to bring problems. Conversely, if you pursue righteousness, that tends to life. Now the point in, in bringing this passage to our attention is not to suggest that every time there's a problem, it's because somebody did evil and so that evil brought a problem. That's not the point. The point is to say that evil by its nature brings problems and that happened in the Garden of Eden. When Satan persuaded Adam and Eve to sin, that was the evil that brought death because that's what rebelling against God inherently does. Well, why didn't God make a perfect world where these things didn't happen? I've heard that question quite a few times. I'm sure you've heard variations of the same one. And the answer is very simple. He did. Why didn't God make a world where the water, the needed water could fall to the earth, but we didn't have to have storms? He did. You read about it in Genesis. We think about that sort of thing in storm season when we're hearing stories about communities that are destroyed, and you just you can't help but think, why, why does it have to be that way? Well, it wasn't. And when you hear of a tragedy and when you hear of a, a child that becomes terminally ill and you, you hear of a family that had problems and you read about a hurricane and, and then there was a volcano and on and on, just problems that happened day by day by day. And we think, why, why did God make it this way? He didn't. He made it perfect. In Genesis 1 and 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God looked at it and God said, it's very good. <clears throat> and the reason it was very good is because there weren't problems. Everything was just right. The termites hadn't showed up yet. In Genesis 2, verse 8 and 9, the Lord planted a garden. <clears throat> the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food and a tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. <clears throat> I enjoy planting a garden and caring for that garden. Before we left for this trip, I 
spent an appropriate amount of time, I think the day, day or two before our departure out there, making sure that it was weeded and that it looked good and, you know, all the rows are neat. I mean, a lot of people's gardens look nicer than mine, but, but I like it to look clean and neat. And I was standing there at the edge of the garden after I was done, and I was looking here and there for what I might have missed. And I felt pleased because I thought it looked nice. That's a place I can go and relax and enjoy the blessing of tilling the earth and growing things. I wonder how beautiful of a garden God could plant. I wonder how well you could relax there. I'm pretty sure they didn't have squash bugs. I'm pretty sure you didn't have to pull weeds. My wife gets a little bent out of shape sometimes when I pull weeds because I'm getting tired of stooping, so I get down on my knees, and if the soil's wet, and it has been this spring, I come in kind of muddy. But those weeds have to be pulled, even if it kind of makes a mess. Got to be cleaned up, right? You didn't have that problem. Or any other kind of problem that makes work difficult before the curse, before sin broke the world. It was a perfect and beautiful garden because God had planted it. You know, during that creation week, God also made angels. You don't read that in the creation account that's recorded in Genesis, but you read it later in the book of Psalms. Psalms 148. Praise him, all his angels. Praise you him, all his hosts. That's verse 2 of Psalms 148. And he mentions other things, praising God. And then you get down to verse 5, and he says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. If you want to know where angels come from, that passage answers that question. God created them. Well, exactly when in the creation week did he create them? I don't know, but I know in Exodus he said, In six days the Lord made heaven and earth. Did you hear that? Heaven and earth and all that in them is. And on the seventh day he rested. So the answer to the question is, somewhere between day one and day six, God made angels. And they were perfect. But then there was rebellion. Ezekiel 28, fascinating passage. It's a fascinating passage that uses a literary device that is common in Old Testament Scripture. And that's called typology. And don't be concerned about what that word sounds like. It's more simple than you think. Typology is where you present a character and describe a character in a certain way that makes that character represent another character. And it's in Scripture a lot. Where one character, certain details of that character's life is emphasized or perhaps even exaggerated in a way that makes that character resemble another character. That happens with Jesus a lot. There's a lot of Old Testament passages that prophesy of Jesus by presenting a character in a way that that character resembles or sort of foreshadows Jesus. And that's called a type or typology. Well, in this particular passage, he presents a character who's the king of Tyrus. 
That's a little city nation that was just to the north of Israel and over against the coast. And often through the years, they were enemies of Israel and very wicked people. And this king of Tyrus in this particular passage is presented. He's a historically real character, but he talks about the king of Tyrus and his wickedness and, and the fact that God's going to punish him in a way that exaggerates his description to make him resemble Satan. Let me show it to you. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Now the king of Tyre didn't live in Eden. He wasn't back in Genesis chapter 1, 2, or 3, okay? This was centuries later. <clears throat> but Tyrus was a beautiful place and a prosperous city, so he's describing him in a way that's exaggerated terminology to make him into a comparison to a wicked angel we know as Satan. You were in Eden. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, the gold, the workmanship of the tabrets and thy pipes was prepared in thee on the day that thou wast created. Well, the king of Tyre wasn't back there during the creation week, but angels were. So he's talking about somebody that was part of the creation. And then you read on in Ezekiel 28, now verse 14, thou art the anointed cherub. That word cherub means a type of angel. So this is where the language goes even further to let us see he's describing that person in an exaggerated way to make him resemble Satan, to give us a key or a clue as to what happened with Satan. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created Till iniquity was found in thee. Now there was never a time that any human besides Jesus was perfect. But here he describes the king of Tyre as though he was because he's really talking about someone else in a symbolic way. And that someone else is an angel that God created and an angel that rebelled against God. And he was beautiful and he was perfect until he rebelled. Here's the thing about Satan and his origin and where did evil come from and where did problems come from. We're not going to turn over here to the book of Hezekiah chapter 12 and verse 87 and find a verse that says, hey guys, this is where Satan come from. What you do find is little pieces of the, of the picture here and there, like putting a puzzle together. You find a piece over in this book, you find a piece over in this book of scripture and you put that all together and you get a full picture of what happened. And I'm going to give you just a few of those puzzle pieces this evening. There are many more besides the ones we're taking time to read tonight. We found one of them right here in Ezekiel 28. A created angel was perfect until he sinned against God. Now, listen to Jesus talk about who that angel was. In John 8, he's talking to the Pharisees, isn't he? In verse 44, he said to them, You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father he will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
from the beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning. And abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. So somewhere in that window of time that's labeled the beginning, not necessarily the first moment of the first day, but in that general period of time, this angel sinned. And his sin was a lie, and it fathered other lies and brought about death. That's what we read about in Genesis 3, when Satan convinced Adam and Eve to sin there. So we've got another piece of the puzzle falling in place. The book of Job is a book that represents events from the patriarchal age. That's prior to Moses' law. And in Job, we find Eliphaz the Temanite talking about, if I could say, patriarchal theology about the origin of Satan. And here he says, Behold, he puts no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. Now here's all that shows us, is that way back before Moses' law, there were people of God like Eliphaz that believed there was a point in time that angels rebelled against God, and God charged them with with guilt of that sin. That's all that tells us. And we find confirmation of that in the New Testament. 2 Peter 2 and 4, If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them to chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So we get another piece of the puzzle that falls into place. And you can add this to what we learned from Ezekiel chapter 28, and you get a clearer picture. That Satan was created, he was created perfect in him. Everything was great. God looked on all that he created and said it's very good. Remember that from Genesis 1? And then at some point, iniquity was found in Satan. At some point, he sinned. And his sin involved lying. He lied to Adam and Eve to trick them to eat the fruit, didn't he? And she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also also to her husband with her and he did eat, Genesis 3 and 6. That's where the rebellion reached mankind. That's where Satan persuaded Adam and Eve to join in the rebellion, though it doesn't appear that they had any thought of rebelling against God. They just bought a sales pitch that was a lie. And when that happened, everything broke. And it didn't break because God made an imperfect world. It broke because someone he made to be perfect chose to sin. And that someone was Satan. And then Satan convinced Adam and Eve to sin. And they chose to sin. And that is why there is evil. So let's look at the effect. In Romans 8, Paul talks a lot about the the resurrection hope, about the end of time about the the eternal hope we have of salvation. And he talks about that against the backdrop of what's wrong with the world. He said in Romans 8 and 22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. We know things are messed up. Okay, we see that. But here he said the whole creation is messed up. The whole creation is groaning and travailing. That's language that relates to giving birth. (coughs) He's he's depicting the physical world as like like a mother that's trying to give birth. And it's just this agonizing process. 
So there is within this language the idea that something is wrong. The effects are that things are broken and it's causing all of creation a lot of pain and a lot of agony. And part of that pain is death. <clears throat> Genesis three nineteen said, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return to the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. Because Adam and Eve sinned, that brought death as a curse upon mankind and creation. And so now we face death. Think about it. Every death is a murder. Well, but what about this elderly person that passed away from just old age and natural causes? Murder. Well, what's, what about somebody that caught a disease or a, an infection and then they die? Murder. Well, what about somebody that ran out of food and they starved to death? Murder. Why? Because the angel that sinned was a murderer from the beginning. Every death has Satan's blood on it, doesn't it? By that I mean the blood of every death is on Satan's hand. Because in that sense of the word, death happens because Satan persuaded Adam and Eve to sin. And that's why we have the curse of death. So... When someone says, why did my loved one have to die? Why did God do this? God didn't, Satan did. Well, but God could have stopped it. He could have fixed it. He is fixing it, and he's going to fix it. But that's not there because of his doing. That's there for us to face because of Satan's doing. Not just death, but our sinfulness. Romans 5 and 12, as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We are inclined to want to do things that aren't right. We've talked about different kinds of sins that the world celebrates in our study yesterday, and one of the primary defenses that the world makes is that, well, it's not a sin because I was born this way. I was born wanting to do this. Whoop-de-doo. Everybody's born wanting to do things that are wrong. That's the whole point of us being sinful. Different people want different things, but we all want things that aren't right. And re Well, why did God make us that way? Why did God make me that way? He didn't. Sin did. Listen to how Paul described it to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2 in the first three verses describing people that have been saved and rescued from the fallen state. He said, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Sin broke humanity and made us inclined to sin. It made us children of disobedience. It made us children of wrath. Sin made humanity by default Satan's ally. 
because by virtue of sin, we joined in his rebellion. Whether we meant it to be that way or not, that's what happened. So the next time you feel frustrated and you think, why do I want to do these things that I know aren't right? You can thank Satan. The next time you feel broken and mad at yourself and, and I tried to overcome these things and maybe I'm making progress but I can't get as far as I want to get, you can blame Satan. Or you need to take responsibility for yourself as well but be sure that you understand that originated with Satan, not God. And Maybe that will help motivate us because you see what Satan's done is he's messed things up and he's messed us up and he did it so cleverly, he's got people blaming God for it when he's the one that did it. Go back and reread Job. Satan goes to Job with a fundamental accusation against God. Read the first two chapters in Job, if that doesn't already jog your memory, and you will see. It is sin and Satan that has broken this world. And he's done so in a way that in the minds of some, it's God's fault, but it's really not. God made a world that was better. Another effect of this was injustice. You talk about the tragedies in the world, and it's so much of it's just not fair, and the reason it's that way is because of sin. Genesis 3, 17 and 18, to Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. God said, That pretty garden just got messed up. You're going to have problems. Because he cursed the ground. Man, how many times do you get mad at work because you're trying to make a living and you're trying to do things and there's always some new obstacle in the way <laughs> and our jobs become about overcoming obstacles and one obstacle followed by another and it can get so frustrating. And why are those problems there, those proverbial weeds and thistles and things in the garden of our endeavors and in the garden of life and it's there because sin broke the world. And made it that way. When we get mad that sometimes life isn't fair, we need to be careful to remember who to be mad at. When we get mad at our brokenness, we need to be careful to remember who to get mad at. Let's develop this idea of injustice a little bit more. The scriptures speak clearly about this in Ecclesiastes 7 and 15. <clears throat> Solomon said, All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. You know what he's saying? He's saying what we sing about sometimes. We wonder why the wicked prosper, doing evil year after year, you know. We sing lamentation-type songs about that, lamenting that sometimes it seems like life is unfair. And you know why it seems that way? Because that's how it is. 
He said a similar thing in the very next chapter in Ecclesiastes 8 and 14. There is a vanity which is done upon the earth, that there be just men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Solomon looked at the unfairness of life and he said, this is vain, this is futile, this is messed up, this world is broken. Now, honestly, a lot of times when we say, well, that's not fair, what that really means is I didn't get my way, okay? But honestly, sometimes life will hand you a bottle full of bitter pills. My wife taught school for over 20 years, bless her heart. She taught elementary different grade levels in elementary and she had a favorite saying when her students frequently complained well Miss Benson that's not fair that's right life's not fair get a helmet that was her favorite saying I'm going to guess some of you have told your children that or maybe some of you have said that in school if you work at school or whatever and we say that because that's how it is just got to get used to it just remember why it's that way Sometimes people suffer to a degree that's greater than any wrong they've done. That's what these passages in Ecclesiastes are acknowledging. You see a little baby that's sick or a little child that's got a problem or even a grown person that's a godly person by every measure of Scripture I mean, none of us are perfect and we're all under the curse of death. We understand that. But in relative terms, they're the kind of people that God in Scripture identifies as godly people. And we see those people suffer and suffer and suffer. And it just seems so unfair. Well, why did God make it this way? He didn't. Sin broke this world and made things in this order. It made us insatiable. Romans 8 and 20, remember the context in Romans that celebrates our salvation but also talks about the reason we need saving. In Romans 8 and verse 20, he said, The creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who have subjected the same in hope. We're subject to vanity. Remember the vanities we read about from Solomon, that life is unfair? He said, we're subject to all kinds of vanity. Look at one of the vanities to which we are subject. In Ecclesiastes 6 and verse 7, the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. All our labor is to satisfy appetites, and yet we can't do it. You ever think about that? You will next Thanksgiving. We worked hours, sometimes days, to prepare the meal. And then we get it all spread out on the table, an embarrassment of riches. And we feast, feast, feast until we're miserable. And we flop back against the chair and we drop our fork loudly against the plate. And we swear, I'll never eat again. I'm so miserable. I will never eat again. And you know what you're doing at about 3 o'clock that afternoon? Where'd that pumpkin pie go? We can't be satisfied. 
You know what's funny about the human body is the more you feed its appetites, the more those appetites grow. You keep eating like that, after Thanksgiving, you'll stretch your belly. And it'll take more to fill it. So you give it more and eat a little extra and you stretch it again and on it goes. And that's just one simple appetite among multiple appetites that the flesh has. And they're all that way. We cannot be filled up. We're broken. And the chasing of sin and sinful pleasure, pleasure is a futility because we're that way. And we're that way because of Satan's hand. He took a beautiful house and he filled it with termites. Praise God, we can be redeemed from all of this. If you're in Christ. 1 Peter 1 verse 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. From your vain conversation received by the traditions from your fathers. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We can't buy our salvation. We can't redeem ourselves with silver and gold. Why? Because it's corrupt. It's part of the broken material world. It's vain, and there's never enough. He that loves silver should not be satisfied with silver. Remember that from Ecclesiastes? It's that same principle, that there's never enough. So he says these corruptible things, they won't redeem us. It took help from heaven, the precious blood of Christ. We cannot allow our eyes to turn here and turn there and turn on every hand and become fixated on the misery. Our heart can't withstand it. We must in those darkest hours cast our eyes heavenward and remember the precious heavenly blood of Jesus that redeems us from this broken world. Titus 2 and 14, speaking of Christ says, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. The word translated peculiar there means his own special people. That means Jesus bought us so that he could own us as his. <clears throat> and we could, be, we could belong to him. Instead of being children of wrath and children of the devil, we can be children of God and part of his family and live a life that befits the blessing of salvation that he's given, zealous of good works. And why are we zealous of good works? Because he's redeemed us. It's not because we're trying to fix our own problems. It's because he's redeemed us and we appreciate it. And we repay his love with our faithfulness because now we're his own special people. Romans 8, let's go back to that context again. Now look at verse 20 through 23. The creature, remember, was made subject to vanity. Remember that? Not willingly. We didn't ask for these problems, did we? But by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. One day we will be rescued from this world that's defined by tragedies and injustice. 
we will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of the body. He's saying, we groan, we yearn. What for? For the resurrection. For that great and glorious day when that azure veil of our sky will peel back and reveal the mighty Son of God with an innumerable host of angels ready to carry us home. Rescue. Why won't God fix it? That's exactly what he proposes to do. Well, but I want him to fix it now. You know, some days I do too. But maybe there's some here tonight that aren't ready yet. You want him to come now before they get ready? Or would you like the Lord to give this earth one more spin to give the sinner just one more chance to make right with God? Think about that. The picture ain't always as clear as we like to make it. Sometimes we're just mad and we're hurt and we just want it to stop. Look, I, I know. We've got to trust God that he knows when to mash the brake pedal and shut this thing down. And he's promised he'll do it. We've got to wait on the Lord, don't we? 2 Peter 3, verse 10 through 13 reassures us in this promise that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. He's going to fix it. He's going to destroy the old home that's eaten up with termites. It's all going to dissolve into nothing, and he's going to replace it with a new one that's fixed, and it ain't broken, and it's going to be better, and those tears are going to be wiped away. In Romans 6, Paul put this choice before us. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. He's giving us the plain truth. We're going to be a servant to somebody. Do you want to be a servant to the sin that destroys us and has wrought all this agony upon humanity? Or do you want to be the servant to the one who rescues us? I put that choice before you and ask you to think with sobriety of heart because someday that sky is peeling back. And when that day comes, it's good news for the faithful. But it's the most treacherous news for the lost. And whatever you want to say, 
about life not being fair, eternal damnation is quite fair. Don't leave yourself where that's what you deserve. Bring your life into the alignment with the will of Christ so that his justice and his righteousness can become yours. And you can receive that hope of that eternal reward. And someday when that last trumpet sounds, it'll be the sweetest sound you've ever heard. Whether it comes while you're yet alive or whether that sound is joined by the voice that awakens your lifeless body from the grave. In that moment, you'll know you're ready because you became a child of God, his own special purchased possession. You do that when you obey the gospel. Why on earth would you not want to do that now? Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.